It's been an incredible ride for Moses. Born at the dictionary definition of the wrong place at the wrong time, he begins life as a baby Jewish boy in Egypt at the moment that Egypt's pharaoh declares a cull on baby Jewish boys in Egypt. His quick-thinking parents bundle him into a basket made of bulrushes and float him away down the Nile, a kind of, if we don't see him die, he's not officially dead. Moses' sister Miriam keeps an eagle eye on her baby brother and spots Pharaoh's own daughter discovering the bulrush cradle while she is bathing herself in the Nile. Possibly only a teenager herself, the girl isn't quite ready to take on the role of mother and so Miriam produces her own mother as the baby's wet nurse. And so Moses grows up in a royal palace to all intents and purposes an Egyptian prince. For the first 40 years of his life, he is pampered and protected from the harsh reality facing his Israelite compatriots who work long, back-breaking hours under a scorching sun in the brickyards of northern Egypt. After he breaks cover, kills a bullying Egyptian overseer for brutalizing a Jewish worker and is later recognized by someone who witnessed the act of manslaughter, he flees and spends the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd across the border in Midian. Here, he receives the call from God to return to Egypt, intervene with Pharaoh and negotiate the release of around 2 million Israelites. Astonishingly, his mission is a success, thanks in no small part to some show-stopping miracles which the Bible attributes to God, who appears to have chosen Israel as his elite nation, a people set apart who he will permanently protect and bless, as long as this people continue to honour and worship him, that is. It's been a long and weary journey. 40 years of wandering in the Sinai desert with a mass of people who never seem satisfied and for whom the grass always appears to be greener back in Egypt. One impetuous moment cancelled Moses and Aaron's entry visas to the Promised Land, the land which God assured the patriarch Abraham over a millennium earlier would come to him and his myriad of descendants. The men are tasked with bringing water from dry rock to slake the people's physical thirst. Moses hits the rock twice, despite not being given any instruction to do so, and claims that he is making water come out of the rock when the miracle is seen by the Bible as 100% the work of God. Yet, despite his access-denied status, this prince-come-shepherd continues to herd the mass of Israelites through hostile desert, leading them into battle and channeling the miraculous provision of food and water which the book assures its readers are the work of God. And now, his work all but complete, Moses knows that he is living on borrowed time. His brother Aaron has already died prematurely thanks to their joint indiscretion with the water, and the time is now approaching for Moses to die, or, as the Bible chooses to put it, to be gathered to his people. But that time has not arrived yet there's still a little gas left in the tank as the Book of Numbers builds up to its season finale. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible, episode 41, 32,000 Virgins. Welcome back to the slow train through the Bible. It's an honour being your tour guide Just knowing that you're there too as we plough through these early and often unloved books of the Bible gives me genuine joy. As in, I'm not the only one who finds these books utterly fascinating. 
And given that it's taking roughly 10 episodes per book and the Bible is 66 of them, forget the Bible in the year, this is more like the Bible in 12 years. Which, daunting as it may seem, is still a little more manageable. Let's face it, the books of Obadiah and Jude are only about a page each, so who knows, we may be quicker than we think. As for the book of Numbers, it's proven to be a heady mix of action and information, and right now it's back to the rule book. Israel's year is broken up with a number of festivals, and celebrating these in the right way appears to be imperative. The Promised Land is now tantalisingly close, and God orders Moses to climb a mountain so that he can get a good view of the territory that will one day belong to Israel. He reminds Moses that after he has glimpsed Israel's new home, he will die as punishment for losing his cool and taking all the glory when the water flowed miraculously from dry rock. Knowing what it's like to be in charge of the rabble that is Israel, Moses stresses the need for a leader who has the chops to shepherd the people into their new home, and God picks out Joshua, claiming that the man possesses the spirit of leadership. According to the book, God urges Moses to lay his hands on Joshua and transfer some of his leadership powers to him. With the whole Israelite community watching, Joshua is to stand in front of Eleazar, who is to commission him as Israel's next official leader. Moses is to transfer some of his authority to Joshua so that the rest of the Israelite community honour their new commander-in-chief. Eleazar is to use the Urim and Thummim to help Joshua decide what Israel's movements should be. This is the decision-making apparatus that is kept in the high priest's ephod and which possibly contains stones. Depending on how the stones roll, the priest is able to interpret God's will on a kind of yes-no, this one, that one basis. Dutifully, Moses follows through on all of God's instructions and Joshua is commissioned on the mountain. The book of Numbers now takes readers on a lengthy detour to recap the kinds of offerings that God expects every day, every Sabbath and every month, as well as reminding the Israelites of the major festivals which need celebrating. The book of Exodus has already explained the sacrifices which the Israelites need to make in order to keep in God's good books, but the generation who heard these laws has died. The entire next book of the Bible comprises of a second law-giving for the benefit of this new generation. Deuteronomy actually means repetition of the law. Before Deuteronomy takes the wheel, though, Moses is rebriefed on the sacrifices which God expects from his people. To ensure that Israel's focus remains on God, the people are to offer him sacrifices every single day. That means one healthy year-old lamb must be offered at the tabernacle in the morning, along with three and a half pounds of flour mixed with two pints of high-grade olive oil. With this, two pints of wine are to be poured against the altar. Fans of metric measurements can find the conversions in the show notes. Each evening at twilight, the same process must be repeated in order to create an aroma which is believed to reach God and which the Bible frequently describes as pleasing to the Lord. On Sabbath days, the regular daily sacrifices are to be offered, as well as an extra two lambs and seven pounds of flour mixed with oil. Readers are introduced to the new moon festivals for the first time. Here, on the first day of the month, pristine bulls, rams and lambs are offered up with varying amounts of flour mixed with olive oil, as well as some wine. Two young bulls, each with ten and a half pounds of flour and four pints of wine, are offered up as well as one ram with seven pounds of flour and two and three quarter pints of wine, and seven lambs each with three and a half pounds of flour and two pints of wine. 
For good measure, a goat is also sacrificed at the beginning of each month in order to absolve Israel from any accidental guilt. Interestingly, as the Jewish year is measured according to new moons, it only has 355 days. Rules for celebrating Passover are repeated, and no one who has read the Bible up until this point can say that they haven't been told how to celebrate this particular festival. However, this is new news for many in the Israelite camp. They are to eat bread made without yeast for seven days, bookended by two Sabbaths. On the first of these holy days, the Israelites are to sacrifice the same quantity of bulls, rams, lamb, flour, oil, wine and goats as they do on the first of every month, in addition to their regular daily offering. This is to be repeated every day of the festival. Passover concludes six days later with another work-free day on which a special ceremony takes place. At Pentecost, a second bull is added to the ram, lamb and goat sacrifice, as well as an offering made up from the first produce of the harvest. Pentecost is the only festival that has no month assigned to it. The harvest comes when it comes. Passover is in Tishvi, the first month of the Jewish calendar, while the Festival of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement are both in month 7, Nisan, with trumpets falling on the first day and atonement on the 10th. The sacrifices for both these festivals are identical to those at the new moon celebrations. The Festival of Tabernacles also falls in the month of Nisan, five days after the Day of Atonement. But when it comes to sacrifices, Tabernacles is in a league of its own. On day one, 13 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs and a goat are killed and then burned on the Tabernacle altar, with the grain, oil and wine accompanying each animal remaining the same ratio as it does at all the other festivals. The next day, the same sacrifice is made, only the number of bulls reduces by one to twelve, and so on each day until seven bulls are killed on day seven. No reason is given for the gradual decrease in the number of bulls to be sacrificed, but the total of seventy is thought to equal the number of known nations at the time. Tabernacles is also known as the Festival of the Nations. The number of bulls killed reduces to one on day eight, which is the closing day of the festival and another work-free day. It's a lot of sacrifices. In total, 227 animals are slaughtered, in addition to the multitude of livestock that is brought in for free will and guilt offerings, or because the people are making vows. God makes it clear to Moses that none of the day-to-day business-as-usual sacrifices should be put on hold just because the festival is underway. According to the book, Moses takes the information which God has provided him with and shares it with a new generation of Israelites who now have no excuses not to celebrate their festivals appropriately once they arrive in their new homeland. Once the rules about festival sacrifices are in the bag, the book turns its attention to the importance of vows, mainly those made by women. Now that Moses has Israel's tribal leaders gathered together, he impresses on them the rule that vows made to God are unbreakable. However, there are exceptions. Young unmarried women who still live at home with their parents have few rights in Old Testament times. Clearly not seen as being in possession of their own minds, these women's vows and pledges can be legitimately overruled by their fathers. 
It's similar for minors today, who can make very few officially binding decisions without parental permission. Though in Moses' day, simply being unmarried and living at home makes a woman effectively without status. A young woman who still lives at home can make vows to God, but these are only unbreakable if her father knows about them and does nothing to intervene. The assumption is that he is in favour of the vow. However, if he gets wind of a vow and is unhappy with it, the whole business ends there and then. Similarly, if a woman makes her vow before getting married and her husband fails to intervene, the vow stands. If the husband thinks his new wife was being a little rash in making her promise, the vow can be voided. Widows or divorcees who make vows are bound to these promises, as these women are seen as being in charge of their own destiny. Married women can also be overruled by their husbands in the Bible. If a husband knows that his wife has made a vow or pledge and stands by without intervening, the woman's promises to God need to be honoured. However, her husband does have the equivalent of power of attorney over her affairs and can cancel any contract between his wife and God just as if she were a child. On the flip side, his silence and inaction confirm that he is complicit in her decision. If a man knows that his wife has made a vow and does nothing, possibly knowing that she will be unable to keep it, then her failure is on him and he must bear any of the subsequent fallout that comes with breaking a pledge with God. Moses' final mission before God switches off his life support machine is to give the Midianites a spanking for the trouble they have caused Israel. To attack Israel's enemy, Moses sends 1,000 troops from each tribe into battle, accompanied by Phinehas, who carries sacred articles from the tabernacle with him into the fight. What these objects are is open to conjecture. They're unlikely to be the Ark and its contents, while the ephod with its decision-making apparatus, the Urim and Thummim, are the property of Phinehas' father, Eleazar, who remains Israel's high priest. What is known is that Phineas brings with him the silver trumpets to signal the start of the battle. The result is an emphatic victory. Five Midianite kings are killed, as well as the prophet for hire, Balaam. Despite his sublime and deeply spiritual prophecies, Balaam is evidently seen as an enemy of Israel by Moses, and there are clearly some open bracket, close bracket shenanigans going on of which readers are kept unaware. All Midianite flocks, herds and other goods are gathered up before the soldiers torch the country's towns and camps. Midian's women and children are taken along with the plunder as prisoners of war to Moses and Eleazar, who are camped on the River Jordan, directly opposite the Canaanite city of Jericho, gateway to the Promised Land. Despite the victory, Moses is furious. It was Midian's women whose successful seduction of Israel's weak-willed men resulted in the recent decimating plague, and now Israel's men have allowed them to live. Moses' response is draconian. All Midianite boys are to be killed, along with every woman who has ever slept with a man, leaving only the girls alive. Israelite purity laws still apply, and anyone who takes part in the bloodshed and has made contact with a dead body must go through a drawn-out decontamination process. These men must live outside the camp with the captive Midianite girls for seven days, purifying themselves, their POWs and everything made from leather, goat's hair or wood, on day three and day seven. The sense is that sandals, clothing and drinking vessels are all compromised when coming into contact with dead bodies.
Eleazar orders the soldiers to cleanse all the precious metal raided from the Midianites by melting it in fire, and even then it needs to be decontaminated by holy water. Anything that can't withstand flames should be sprinkled with the water, and it will be considered clean. After the seven days is up, all clothes should be washed, at which point the soldiers, their captives and their hall will be allowed back into the camp. According to the book, God instructs Moses, Eleazar and the heads of the tribal groups to count all the people and animals that have been captured and half of everything is to be given back to the soldiers who fought the Midianites. Of this half, every 500th animal or slave girl is set aside for God and must be handed to Eleazar. The other half is to be distributed to the community with every 50th cow, sheep, gold coin or young Midianite woman being given to Eleazar to put in the tabernacle kitty. What happens to the virgin Midianite girls is not explained. They can't be given to the priests as wives, as priests are forbidden to marry outside of Israel. Most likely, they're given work as slaves or servants in a Levite family. Clearly a fan of Numbers, the writer of the Book of Numbers details the exact amount of everything in the Midianite hall. In all, 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys and 32,000 virgin women have been captured. Of the half that is handed over to the soldiers, 675 sheep, 72 cattle, 61 donkeys and 32 people are given back to Eleazar. Moses then takes every 50th animal or human from the community hall and hands them to the Levites who look after the tabernacle. The army commanders then bring news that not one soldier was lost in the skirmish. They also bring a huge amount of personal plunder taken from the slain Midianites. Gold armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings and necklaces. They hand these to Moses in the hope that God will forgive them for any wrong which they might have done. All the precious metal is duly counted and weighed, and around 420 pounds of treasure is added to the tabernacle coffers. The sense is that God has given Israel this phenomenal victory, and that God needs to be thanked for this. Rewarding the soldiers who physically defeated Midian is an encouragement to Israel's men to join in any future battles, and the willing donation of treasure from these men is hoped to make God remember them favourably possibly sparing them death and guaranteeing them success in the wars that lie ahead of them. And one of those maybe-they-were-maybe-they-weren'ts that can never be proved, given that Moses spends 40 years of his life in Midian and marries a local woman, there is a chance that his own sons are among the slain Midianite soldiers. And so we approach the home straight in the book of Numbers. And it is here that three of Israel's tribal groups drop a bombshell. The River Jordan is the emphatic boundary line that demarcates the entry to the promised land. Yet three of these tribes announce to Moses that they will not be crossing it. As the Bible's fourth book comes to an end, so it appears just the dream of conquering Canaan, the land of milk and honey, the end destination whose abundance and hope has kept this nomadic rabble going for almost 40 years. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. 
Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com or on our Facebook page or Twitter feed. And if you like what you hear, why not give us a five-star review on whatever channel you listen to this podcast?